get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And this is another bonus episode that I'm recording in Las Vegas, Nevada, as I attend Sweet World 18. You can probably hear from my voice that uh, the dry desert air and the long hours on the show floor are starting to take its toll. Also, it's five in the morning here, but that's no excuse. Let's get on with the show. So Sweet World 18 is a big conference that's hosted by NetSuite, which in turn is now a division of Oracle. But NetSuite did not start out that way. And so I want to give you the story of NetSuite. Also, letting you know this bonus episode's a little shorter than my normal episodes, largely because, uh, well, <laughs> there are limitations to what I can do with hotel Wi-Fi and getting these sound files out to my super producer, Tari. So uh, that's the reason for that. But let's talk all about NetSuite. What is this company? What does it do? Where did it come from? Well, it's a company that makes products for other companies, products and services. So it's a business-to-business enterprise. Most of us would likely have no real experience with NetSuite unless we work in some company that is relying on NetSuite's products. Otherwise, we don't really have contact with it. It's one of those companies that works behind the scenes. And these business-to-business companies, often when you start digging into it, on the service level, they seem really complicated, And sometimes it seems like there's nothing there in relation to what we do in our normal lives. But then when you really look in, you realize, wait a minute, these are the companies that do work that allow the other companies that I am familiar with, the ones that I do interface with directly, to do their work. So you can think of NetSuite as one of the companies that creates those products that allow other companies like retail companies, service companies to do what they do. And that's why you have the experience you do working with those companies, at least on a on a grand level, before you get really granular. So NetSuite's story begins with its founder, Evan Goldberg. Goldberg was adopted at birth. He grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts. As a young boy, he became interested in math, and uh, by fifth grade, he was already into programming, and he really took to it. So much so that that became his main focus. Uh, He attended Phillips Academy Andover, and later he attended Harvard. He had scholarships with both. He graduated from Harvard with a degree in applied mathematics. Very smart guy. And a lot of people describe him as being uh, extremely talented when it comes to applied mathematics and coding. In fact, there are stories about his days at NetSuite, even as an executive, where he was right there in the trenches with other developers working on the code. And many people, many of the developers said, well, he codes faster than anyone else here. Uh, and he served as chief technology officer for NetSuite through much of its history. So right out of college, he got the nod to come and work for the Oracle Corporation. Uh, and I'll talk about Oracle in a subsequent podcast kind of give you the Oracle story, because it's also very interesting. But in general, Oracle is a computer technology corporation that started back in 1977, and it's one of the largest software makers in the industry. It's kind of like right behind Microsoft. One of the founders of Oracle, Larry Ellison, played a very important role with NetSuite, becoming its largest investor. 
Goldberg worked for uh, uh, Oracle for um, in various capacities for several years until 1995. He decided then to strike out on his own, and he founded a web development firm called Embed Software, and that's M-B-E-D, no, no uh, E at the beginning of that. Goldberg's operation was relatively small. He didn't have a whole lot of people working for him, maybe like 15 or so. But even so, he found it challenging to operate the business successfully. And one of the things that frustrated him was that unlike big companies, which had access to very complex software kits that allowed them to do things like track customers and and do payroll and all this kind of stuff, he found that small business owners didn't really have those options. There, There weren't a whole lot of uh, assets out there that they could use, especially ones that would be affordable to a small business. Most of the solutions out there were meant for big, big companies, and therefore they cost a lot of money. So your typical small business couldn't really afford to invest in those software kits. And so he thought, well, wait a minute, there's actually an opportunity here. You could create a solution for these small to mid-sized companies that uh, is more cost-effective for them. So he called up his buddy, Larry Ellison, in 1998, and he pitched the idea of creating a customer relationship management, or CRM, product for small businesses. Now, Ellison reportedly told Goldberg that it might be easier to start out with a financial-based solution for small businesses. So essentially, accounting software. Start with that and then grow from there. And further, he made the suggestion of making the product web accessible, meaning it would become a software as a service offering. And I talked about that in the cloud computing episodes. But software as a service is this idea that you don't go out and buy a software package to live on your computer. Instead, you pay a subscription to allow you access to software that lives on another computer, the provider's computer. And you can take advantage of the software, you can use it all you like, but you don't have it living on your computer. Now, this can bring the cost of the software down on a per-month basis. Like, if you look at how much the software costs up front, it might be thousands of dollars for these enterprise solutions. But if you can bring that down to a smaller amount per month, while over the lifetime of your use of the software, you're likely to spend more money than if you were just to buy it outright, uh, the monthly cost is much lower than the upfront one-time cost of buying the software. Plus, you don't have to worry about the software going out of date and then having to buy an upgrade because the software is being operated by the provider and they're making all the updates on the back end. You get to enjoy that without having to do it yourself. So Ellison was really forward thinking here. This is 1998 when software as a service really hadn't become a thing yet. So Goldberg followed Ellison's advice and he launched a company out of San Mateo, California toward the end of 1998 and he called it Net Ledger. And he also took some of Ellison's money, actually a lot of it, uh, ultimately more than a hundred, hundred million dollars of it. So Larry Ellison was a major stakeholder in this private company after making that large startup investment and a couple of subsequent investments. Goldberg gathered a team and built an accounting software solution that had a web-based interface, and it was ready to go in early 1999. The starting price for using it when it first launched was $4.95 per month. So when you figure that out, that's 
you know, around $60 a year. For $60 a year, you could have access to this accounting software when the actual, if you wanted to go out and buy like an enterprise level accounting software kit, it might cost hundreds of dollars. So for some companies, this would make a whole lot of sense. Now, the early NetLedger application started to leverage Oracle's database technology. That was one of the parts of the deal that was made early on. Another sign that the two companies were rather tightly coupled at that point. The company announced it was working on additional features right out of the gate. So even when they were launching this accounting software, they said, hey, this is not the only thing that we're ever going to offer. We're going to include other features and they're all going to be integrated together. So it's not just that we're going to have a software kit for one aspect of your business or another. We're going to have an integrated approach of solutions so they all work with each other. This was looking at another problem that companies were having, which was that you would typically get one type of software to handle one part of your business's operations, like accounting. And you might have a different software package to handle something like payroll. And you might have a different one to track sales and a different one for customer relationship management. And many of these software packages, they might be from different providers, which means they're not necessarily uh, compatible with one another. It's not easy to share information across them, which means you have to generate reports out of all of them and then compare them and then figure out what your best approach is and do a lot of data analysis of your own. And so the promise NetLedger was trying to make was saying, what we're going to do is come out with a suite of programs, a suite of features that all are designed from the beginning to be interoperable so that you can easily share information across different uh, functions of your business and make it easier for you to be able to do what you need to do, especially as you get bigger. And again, they're kind of marketing this to small to mid-sized companies saying, why should you have to struggle when large companies have been solving these problems for years with very expensive software packages? Let's set this up. So the company announced it was working on uh, features like linking e-store transactions directly with accounting software. So in other words, there'd be no need to have two tracking systems, one for the sales that you're making in e-stores and then a separate one for accounting where you'd have to port over the results from one to the other. The whole approach would be integrated, which sounds pretty standard today. But again, at the time, that was pretty revolutionary for these sized companies. Meanwhile, Mark Benioff, who was another former Oracle executive, got a similar idea to Goldberg right around the same time, in fact. And about a month after NetLedger launched, he launched Salesforce.com. And Salesforce.com did have customer relationship management as its primary focus, the thing that Goldberg had suggested when he called up Ellison. And you could argue that NetSuite was the uh, first real cloud computing company. The first real commercial cloud computing company out there was pretty much NetSuite. But Salesforce.com ended up making the bigger impact. It grew faster. It got a lot more attention. If you look online for stories about the history of cloud computing like I did, Salesforce.com pops up way more frequently than NetSuite does uh, for those stories. Oh, and uh, Ellison also invested money in Salesforce.com too. So spreading your bets. Back to NetLedger. Gradually, uh, Goldberg and his team began to add in other features in addition to accounting. And again, they were all meant to help those smaller businesses manage various operations through a more centralized approach. 
and it falls into a category of products, eventually, at least one of the offerings, called Enterprise Resource Planning, or ERP, in which a system allows business operators the chance to get kind of a holistic view of what's going on behind the scenes at their companies. I'll talk more about ERP a bit later and go into greater detail about what that entails, but it's really big stuff. I mean, it's stuff that's, when you try to wrap your mind around it, when you just start to consider how complex it is, you realize that a tool that automates this could be really, really useful if it's implemented properly. Now, Oracle would end up licensing NetLedger's product under the name Oracle Small Business Suite for a short while, but that experiment didn't last terribly long, and eventually they kind of dropped that branding. Uh, In 2001, CNET ran a review for Oracle Small Business Suite 7.0, and at that time, NetLedger wasn't just accounting, it was also handling sales tracking, customer inquiry processing, and more. But the review concluded that the then price of $99 per month was pretty steep for the small businesses that the company was targeting, and that unless a business needed all the features that were offered in the suite, it would make more sense to stick with smaller software packages like QuickBooks. So essentially what CNET was saying was, Sure, if you need all these features, then maybe $99 a month makes sense. But if all you're looking for is the accounting side, then just go out and get accounting software. Don't bother with going with the suite approach. The review also criticized the speed of the application, saying that desktop-based software was generally faster. Not a big surprise that a uh, web-based offering was slower than a desktop one, especially when you start considering things like internet speed. And, and bandwidth and things of that nature. So CNET gave the product 7 out of 10. So it wasn't exactly a disastrous review, but it didn't really do NetLedger any favors in those early days. But the team kept working on improving features, and later reviews were a little more positive. They had a lot going against them at that time. The cloud computing business strategy was largely unproven, And to make matters worse, they launched right at the very beginning of the period we call the dot-com crash, in which multiple web-based startups had launched and then fizzled away, mostly after failing to prove they could operate as a revenue-generating business. In other words, that they could actually make a profit. There were so many startups that people were excited about in those early days that had not come up with an effective business plan. Like They had big ideas of what they wanted to do, but they didn't really have a way of managing it and certainly not growing and scaling the business in a way that was man- that, that was sustainable. And so as a result, you had a lot of these companies flash on the scene, get a huge amount of investment uh, money poured into them, burn through that investment money in ridiculous amounts of time, and then collapse in on themselves. So a lot of companies failed. Two of them that didn't were NetLedger and its rival, Salesforce.com. They were both able to survive that era, but lots of other companies weren't so fortunate. Now, you can listen to some of my older episodes about the dot-com crash and the companies that did not make it, if you like. There are tons of them in the Tech Stuff archives, and they are interesting stories filled with useful warnings about startup behavior in general. In fact, a lot of analysts like to point to the dot-com crash and say, Do you remember when this happened? Maybe we should be a little more cautious with these unicorns that are popping up in Silicon Valley. Now, I've got a little bit more to say about NetSuite, actually a lot more. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. (music) 
In July 2002, Zach Nelson joined the NetLedger team as the CEO of the company. Nelson had also worked with Oracle in the past, so continuing the Oracle association with NetSuite, but he had worked at other places too, including McAfee, Sun Microsystems, and Motorola. Interestingly, Nelson's degrees aren't in business. He attended Stanford and earned degrees in biological sciences and anthropology, and then became uh, CEO of a cloud-based tech company. Wow. I'm just saying, I've got an English lit degree. If you want to make me CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, although I doubt I could do nearly as good a job as Zach Nelson did. In September 2003, NetLedger officially would change its name to NetSuite and would become the company that we now know, although now, of course, it's a division within Oracle. The company had been offering a product called NetSuite already. Uh, That was essentially the, the same sort of offering that was the Oracle Small Business Suite. And this indicated that they were really going with software as a service beyond just accounting. That w- They didn't want to have NetLedger indicate that they only were interested in accounting, that they were doing other things. So at this point, the company's services could also handle marketing department needs in addition to the other ones that I already talked about. And gradually, NetSuite was adding in all the standard processes and departments you would find in mid-sized businesses. Now, NetSuite's value proposition was that it could offer up all the services that a company might need, eliminating the necessity of investing in those different products for various functions. So, again, they were saying, here's a a holistic, integrated approach that you can use that will make everything much more streamlined. That was what they were trying to sell to customers, and that you could easily share stuff across departments. You could increase the interdepartmental communication within your business so that you wouldn't have someone in one department saying, well, where are the numbers of uh, sales so that we can plan our, our, our strategies? Like if it's marketing and sales, all of this would be integrated so that if you were using the NetSuite tools, you could call up the reports you needed and make your decisions there. You didn't have to worry about waiting on somebody else to send you the information you needed. At least that was the, again, sales pitch. As the suite of features grew, so did the fee to access them, which led some other analysts to echo what CNET had said in 2001, and namely that the company was pricing themselves out of their target customer base of those small to mid-sized companies. By the mid-2000s, cloud computing was starting to come into its own in the business world. NetSuite continued to grow, though not as quickly as its rival Salesforce.com. The company eventually began to add more services and features, uh, they fall into some really big categories. So I'm going to talk about those categories now, and I'm going to give a little more detail about some stuff I've already mentioned. So first, let's start with customer relationship management, because that was the one Evan Goldberg had in mind originally when he pitched his idea to Larry Ellison back in 1998. It was the idea that Salesforce.com went with in 1999, and we frequently initialize this category to CRM. It's all about how a company interacts with its customers. So The name is pretty self-explanatory, Customer Relationship Management. Uh, So those customers might be other businesses or, you know, they might be real-life human being type people like me and you or you and me or you and I or or all of us. Goo-goo-goo-choo, we are the walrus. CRM is about learning what your customers like and don't like about your products and services. It's about improving customer satisfaction and therefore customer retention 
And ultimately, it's about driving more sales to customers. Now, keep in mind, we are talking about businesses here. So at the end of the day, the purpose of a business is to make money doing whatever it is that the business does. So while customer satisfaction is very important, it's typically done with the view of how can I sell more to this person? just so that you don't get too many warm, fuzzy feelings about customer service. Uh, but it is important. And obviously, companies that have great customer service are more likely to retain a customer and to encourage that customer to purchase more and more than a company that has really crappy customer service. I'm sure you've all had good and bad experiences with customer service with various companies. And I'm sure in many cases that has led to changes in your behavior, whether it meant stepping away from a company because you didn't like the way you were treated or sticking with a company, becoming a loyal customer because of the way that they did treat you. NetSuite's product has lots of features to track customer behaviors to give analysts the chance to figure out what's going on nearly in real time. So ideally, this would give a company the chance to address any problems quickly or capitalize on working strategies to maximize their impact. Now, this is more complicated than it sounds because there are so many potential points of contact between a company and its customers. So there are the obvious points, like a company's website. So if there are feedback forms on the website, that's a clear case where you're getting communications from your customers. But there could also be phone lines, which means you have representatives and you have to incorporate their reports into your information. There could be an email contact. There could be social media accounts. So it all starts to add up. With a really good CRM solution, ideally you would be able to get a pretty big high-level view of what the overall customer perception is of your company's business. Like what does the average person think about what you do? And if it's great, then you know you're doing well and that you should really concentrate on those strategies. And if it's not so great, you know that you have an image problem and you need to fix it. And that image problem might be on the surface or it might be indicative of a very serious crucial problem at the core of your business. Either way, this is one of those methods where you can actually get that indication and then respond to it. So you can plan your strategies accordingly based upon what your customers think about you. Then there's the e-commerce side of NetSuite. These are tools that are meant to help integrate online sales with traditional point-of-sale tools to help a business keep an accurate tally of all sales across all platforms. So Let's say that you own a business that sells, oh, I don't know, fidget spinners. That that trend is almost over, so let's go ahead and talk about that. You you've got in on the tail end of the fidget spinner craze, but you're you're really hoping that it comes back, kind of like yo-yos do every few years. So you have a big storefront in um, Times Square, New York. And you also have your online store, and you want to be able to see how sales are doing both at the physical retail spot and online. So if you have a software kit that can uh, integrate all that information, you can actually see the total sales, both online and in your physical storefront. You could break it out by looking at online only, storefront only. You could possibly even break it out further, like online only by region. So depending upon the software that you're using for e-commerce, you could be able to get really granular and you might see, oh, well, there's this one particular place that's doing really, really well. And there's this other place where sales are are dragging behind. I should look into seeing why that is. And there could be lots of different reasons 
for that, right? It could just be that there's no market for fidget spinners in that other region. Or it could be that you don't have enough salespeople in that region, and that's why your sales figures are low. It could be that there was some sort of back-end error where maybe there was a manufacturing problem or a shipping problem. So there's lots of different things that could indicate why those sales are low. This is also another reason why that integrated approach is one of the big selling points that NetSuite hits over and over again when they're marketing to customers. They say, you know, any piece of information is valuable, but it's way more valuable when you pair it with all the other information and when you can actually see what is the cause of that. Because if you only have these individually, if you have these you know, separated out and there's no context, you can't necessarily be sure why the information has turned out the way it is. So that's one of their big selling points that they have for their customers. Uh, there's also human capital management or HCM. I personally find the phrase human capital to be really icky. I don't think I don't I don't like thinking of people in terms of being assets to a company because it seems dehumanizing to me. But hey, that's me being all hippy dippy. The important thing about these features is that they centralize human resource operations and payroll. So as companies grow, it becomes more difficult to track all of that stuff. And the promise NetSuite makes to its customers is that their product will keep things simple even as the company gets more complicated. And the software generates reports on demand and gives managers a chance to look for outliers that might be the result of a mistake or they might indicate an under or overperforming employee and thus allow you to address that further. Um, then there's professional services automation or PSA. That's all about project management and resource allocation. Uh, there are a lot of businesses out there that operate on the principle of billable hours. I used to work in consulting and in those days, you were supposed to bill all of your hours to whichever projects you were working on. So if you were working on Project A for four hours in the day, you would write that down. And then maybe you spent two hours on Project B, so you would write that down. You're supposed to keep track of all of that information because all of that would be billed to the client. Or sometimes it's all internal billing where it, it doesn't ever go necessarily to an outward client, but it's a way for a company to keep track of what employees are doing what projects they're working on, which projects are taking up the most in assets. Again, there's that word to refer to human beings as assets. Um, and it's a way of, of just tracking what's going on. So uh, that was part of what PSA covers. And finally, there's the Enterprise Resource Planning or ERP section. I talked about this just briefly earlier. These are all the back-end operations a business needs to handle, like inventory, shipping, billing, and more. And obviously that, that applies mainly to businesses that are dealing with actual physical products, but services-based businesses, they also have to work with inter enterprise resource planning. So as business, businesses grow, this gets way more complicated. You could be dealing with multiple warehouses, uh, manufacturing plants, retail locations, so you have to figure out how to manage all those moving pieces to make the stuff you make and get it to the people who want it. And it can also include functions like quality control. So if it turns out your brand new fidget spinner has a tendency to burst into flames when you spin it counterclockwise, you'll know. And then you can address it before it becomes a huge problem. You can put a hold on them and find out what the underlying issue is and fix it. Features might include things like sending reports to various managers to clear out bottlenecks, or put a hold on shipments while you work to resolve problems. And it gets even more complicated when you start operating in other countries. 
And one of the other things the company has worked to keep up with is the changing nature of business. Now, I mentioned going international just a second ago, but a few years ago, that was something only really big companies could do is when you reached a certain level of growth, then you could start looking into expanding operations into other countries. But with the Internet, it's way easier to extend a presence into new markets in different countries. At least it's easier in that the Internet gives people a potential point of contact. Actually doing business in other countries gets a lot more complicated because of multiple factors that you have to consider. So, again, let's talk about you and your fidget spinners. Like Your fidget spinners are doing really well. For some reason, the trend has come back into vogue. And you start having to ask yourself a lot of questions. Like, you want to explore the possibility of, of opening up uh, operations in other countries. So does it make sense to continue making your fidget spinners in your main manufacturing facility? So in our hypothetical example, let's say that you've got your manufacturing facility in um, Hey Hira, Georgia. It's a Ray Stevens call-out. Fidget spinner capital of the hypothetical situation. Hey Hira, Georgia. If you do keep your manufacturing centralized in Hey Hira, Georgia, it means that you'll be shipping all those fidget spinners overseas to your international markets. Now, that obviously is going to increase the cost per spinner that you are incurring, and that will eat into your profits. Or does it make more sense for you to either build or partner with a manufacturing facility in the country or countries you want to do business with? And if so, that requires more management, but it might cut down on other costs, including shipping costs, because if you're closer to your destination, you don't have to ship things as far. So there are lots of other matters to consider, like foreign currencies. What's the exchange rate? How are you, how is that going to affect your business? Also taxes. Different countries and even different regions within some countries have different tax laws. So you have to know all of these in order to price your fidget spinners properly and make sure you're still making a profit. And then there are localization issues to consider. So let's say the country you've got your sights on is um, Germany. They seem like they'd be really big into fidget spinners. That's a fun-loving country. So to make things go more smoothly, it would be good to have your business localized so that German customers can operate easily with your storefront, which means having a German-language website, and it means having some... German-speaking people to communicate uh, so that you're, when people talk to your company, you can talk back with them. Uh, so you want to have some sort of localized support there. It may also mean developing tailored customer relationship strategies for German customers because you may find out that people in different parts of the world behave differently, that you can't just use the exact same customer relationship approach across the world. It might work in one part and not in another. Now, take this imaginary scenario and then expand it to an operation that's trying to go worldwide. So how do you make sure you're serving everyone well? That's why companies like NetSuite try to come up with strategies that uh, that incorporate these ideas and are supposed to help you be able to implement them. Uh, and of course, NetSuite's not the only one that does this. But I mean, this is the story of NetSuite, which is why I'm talking about it. But it does show you how complicated things can get very quickly as uh, businesses grow, particularly in the Internet age where we have an unprecedented access to the whole world. So things happen really fast now. And that, again, is why uh, companies like NetSuite can offer up services that can look really attractive if you're a business owner who doesn't have experience in these realms. 
Now, I've got a little bit more to say about NetSuite, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. In 2007, NetSuite held its initial public offering, meaning it transformed from a private company to a publicly traded one. And when preparing to set the opening price for shares, NetSuite actually doubled its initial estimate of $13. The new price of $26 per share would put the value of the company at more than $1.5 billion, a princely sum. NetSuite did not do this increase randomly. The company actually held what is known as a Dutch auction for the IPO. And actually, there are two different types of Dutch auctions, and they contradict each other. So I'll explain what the other one is at the end of this. But when we talk about IPOs, the Dutch auction is a process that a company essentially puts out a question to investors, which is, how much stock are you willing to buy, and at what price are you willing to buy it? Then the company takes all that response and they look at it and they figure out what the best opening price of its IPO stock is based off those results. And this is in an attempt to get the most money on that opening. So if you say, oh, well, here's the highest amount that someone said they were willing to pay for our stock. So that sets our upper limit. Here's the lowest one that sets our low limit. Where do most of them fall in? All right, so it turns out that people are, value our stock more than $13 per share. So let's go ahead and increase it. And that's how they got to the figure of $26 per share. Uh, in its first day of trading, the shares ended up trading at $27.75 at the end of the day. That bummed out some shareholders who were really hoping for a first day surge in value. That frequently happens with IPOs. But then you could argue that that happens with IPOs that undervalued their stock going into trading. And in this case, you could argue that NetSuite pretty much nailed the value of its stock. But for investors, that doesn't necessarily come back as a happy news because you may want to have that feeling of a day one payday where you buy a thousand shares of stock at $13 and it closes at 26 and you've just doubled your money. Uh, that didn't happen. Oh, and I mentioned uh, that Dutch auctions have two meanings. So here's the other one. The other is an auction where you start off with a high price and you gradually bring the price down for an item until someone bids on the item at the that current price. So you might say, let's auction this painting starting off at $25,000 and then you might go down by $500 per bid. And then as soon as someone bids on it, once it starts hitting a certain price, um, then the auction for that item is over and that person buys it. So instead of Starting from a low point and bidding higher, you start at a high point and wait until some bidder decides that that's the price they're willing to pay for whatever the item is. And typically you keep going down until you hit the reserve price of the auction item. And at that point you stop because you wouldn't want to sell for less than what the thing is actually worth uh, or has been set as a reserve price anyway. Worth is a difficult concept when it comes to auctions. So one thing else I wanted to talk about is that NetSuite has acquired a few companies since it launched, uh, since its IPO in 2007. In 2008, they bought a company called OpenAir that specialized in web-based expense reports and timesheets. In 2009, NetSuite acquired Quick Arrow, which created professional services automation products. And other acquisitions include e-company, retail, anywhere, uh, in 2013 and email service provider Bronto software in 2015. And there were a lot of others as well, but now NetSuite itself is an acquisition 
or it has been acquired. Back in 2016, Oracle announced its intention to purchase NetSuite for a cool $9.3 billion. Technically, this involved talking with investors and making an agreement to buy back 50% of the stocks that were out in circulation so that Ellison, Larry Ellison, would essentially get more control over it because he and his family had nearly 50% of the company, not quite, around 47%. And, uh, the, the deal meant that the, uh, selling price for that other stock that other people were holding was actually higher than what the trading price was. This is how they were able to buy out the, uh, some of the other investors. And so it was a deal that was valued at about $9.3 billion. Now, Oracle also deals in cloud-based solutions for customers. And like I've mentioned, it's had a pretty tight relationship with NetSuite throughout its history. Some analysts pointed out that the acquisition solved a problem that Oracle was running into. NetSuite had more of a presence with mid-sized companies, a market that Oracle wanted to really get into. And Oracle and NetSuite had been competing a bit in that market, which was weird because Oracle also had a close relationship with NetSuite. Uh, and according to NetSuite executives, the former company continues to operate as it did before. It's just now a department in the larger Oracle Corporation and can take advantage of Oracle's technologies and database and, and huge amounts of information. The uh, acquisition was approved and completed in late 2016. So NetSuite now operates as part of Oracle and has integrated several of its approaches with Oracle products. And at Sweet World 18, where I am now, executives talked about new features being added in. The one I thought was the most interesting was artificial intelligence meant to help alert managers to extraordinary cases, things that could indicate either someone has committed an error that needs to be addressed or potential strategic moves that could save a company money. So, for example, you could set up a project that involves manufacturing your fidget spinners in Hamburg, Germany and shipping them to Berlin. But then you see that the NetSuite product is telling you that this plan has a low probability of being profitable. And getting that information before you actually commit your resources could help you save tons of money and make you more nimble in the process to actually figure out a working strategy that will make you money. Uh, as assuming that the product works as advertised, of course. I can't speak to that last bit because I've never used NetSuite. Now, I can say that they throw a really wild event. And the presentations had a DJ mixing up music tracks live before the events even started. There were enormous screens with projections of presentations and live video of presenters. There were lights and smoke effects and acrobats. It was all pretty over the top for an event that was designed to market new features to NetSuite customers. Um, I, I'm not really sure how I feel about these trade shows, guys, because it's so weird. I mean, I'm not the target audience. I'm not a NetSuite customer. So... I'm looking at this from a very objective point of view and it is, it's a weird spectacle. It's, it's not necessarily bad. It's just weird. Uh, there was a lot of humor in the presentations, which I appreciated, including a video about how Evan Goldberg talking, uh, you know, speaking with people over at Oracle and saying, Hey, I've got this great idea. We're going to announce all of our, our new ideas with a viral video. And then the guy at Oracle's like, no, please don't do that. And Evan Goldberg's like, you're right. We should do it. And then he goes out and does this crazy mashup viral video approach, which was extremely dorky. And I appreciated that because I'm also extremely dorky. So it was an interesting experience attending this conference um, and learning more about NetSuite, uh, a, a company I had heard about multiple times, but never really looked into. So uh, our next episodes will be about Oracle. We'll talk more about how that company came into being and what it has uh, done over its years, uh, more about Larry Ellison 
and some of the trials and tribulations that Oracle has been through. But if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, I highly recommend you get in touch with me. Send me an email. The address for the podcast is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And remember, on normal weeks, I broadcast live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. You can actually watch me record the podcasts in real time. You get a chance to see the podcast uh, being recorded. You get to hear them usually a couple of weeks before they come out and you get to see me make mistakes. Plus there's a chat room you can jump into and chat with other people who are fans of tech stuff. Hope to see you guys there and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 